Hi, everyone. Welcome to Let's Talk About Skills, baby. I am your host, Kelly Ryan Bailey. Each week, I chat with inspiring visionaries about the skills that make them successful, how they develop those skills, and their innovative approaches to improving skills-based hiring and learning around the world. Come learn what skills can help you live your best life. My guest today is Chike Agu. Chike, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Um, I'm going to give a little bit of background on Chike before we jump in. So Chike works across sectors on creating a future of work for all. He is the inaugural head of Economic Mobility Pathways at the Education Design Lab. There he leads the Community College Growth Engine Fund, which is an innovative tri-sector and $2.5 million effort turning community colleges into bridges to careers in high growth fields for every American learner and worker, starting with nearly 4,000 in six communities. This is really an amazing effort. You guys, we're gonna jump into this a little bit more later, but I will say that I am just like so excited for the work that you're doing around this particular effort, Chike. Thank you. Um, and just to give a little further background about Chike, because this is very interesting to me, by the way. Um, so Chike is also a technology and human rights fellow at the Harvard Carr Center for Human Rights Policy, where he is writing a book on the future of work and racial equity and venture partner at Maryland-based New Markets Venture Partners, where he focuses on workforce technologies. He is also a faculty member at Columbia University and an advisor on social impact to Baltimore-based upskilling technology startup, Catalyte. Did I pronounce that the right way? Perfect. Great, wonderful. Um, previously to this, Chike worked as education policy official under the mayor of New York. He's a second, he was a second grade teacher and Teach for America Corps member, a Fulbright scholar in Thailand researching education and skills, Definitely want to hear more about that. <laughs> he was also the director of corporate strategy at Education Advisory Board. I think most of us might fondly know them as EAB. Um, CEO of a national social enterprise, which helped connect 500,000 low-income Americans to affordable internet and digital skills, and senior principal and future of work lead at the McChrystal Group, a business advisory firm founded by General Stan Stanley McChrystal. He has also served as a member of the Council on Foreign Relations Future of Work Task Force, expert advisor to the American AI Forum, and inaugural Future of Work Fellow at the International Society for Technology and Education. This is honestly such a huge honor to have you here, Chike. I, 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 there are so, I want to even, I hope you don't mind if I'm like just going to continue to gush for a moment because this is, I know, can you sit through it? Is it okay? I will sit through it. I will sit through it. <laughs> I'm going to play this back for, for my, for my wife and my mom. They'll really appreciate it. I know. Isn't that the best? It is. Um, but, but Chike, I, I want to recognize because this is work. I mean, this is a lot of work that you've put in for all of your accomplishments. I wanna recognize his degrees from Tufts University, um, Harvard Graduate School of Education, Harvard Kennedy School of Government, and University of Pennsylvania's Wharton Business School. Um, he is, I think I mentioned already that he was the Presidential Leadership Scholar, um, the past Council on Foreign Relations term member, 40 under 40 honoree from Wharton and the Washington Business Journal. Um, and Chiki, um, I believe, if I remember correctly, you guys live in Prince George County, Maryland. Is Absolutely. that correct? Absolutely. 
Wonderful. Um, and I'm joining you guys from New Jersey, just so everyone knows where we are. Sometimes these virtual things, it's a little <laughs> funny where we're like, huh, we're not together. Where is everybody? Um, but I love that area of Maryland. Um, so Chike, you have you, you wife and, and one son? One, yep. Lovely. Yeah, it feels what? like three, but one. <laughs> no, no, that, I mean, hey, kids are kids. Um, so what's his name? Kalechi. And how old is he? He is three and a half. Aw, so you guys aren't yet worried about what the, the school year is bringing or is he supposed to be in preschool or so in preschool? So he was actually, he was going, he was going to be and we're still trying to actually figure it out. We're like many other parents where, um, frankly, where, where uh, things change every single day. And I think school districts like, like I used to help lead and uh, others are trying to do their best right now um, and figure out how do you do education differently? It's a conversation in K-12, higher ed, workforce development. And uh, I think we're all kind of living through the maelstrom right now. It is so true, honestly. It's just an interesting time, let's put it that way. Yes. <laughs> so I know I was able to give the highlights, um, but I would love to jump in a little bit more and learn about really more in-depthly what, what in your journey has really led you to where you are today, because these are some fantastic accomplishments, and i just like, love to dig a little bit deeper for everyone that's listening in. Uh, so first of all, that's super kind. Just well, thank you so much for having me. And thank you just for having a platform dedicated to this issue. I would argue that making sure that every American worker, every American learner has the skills they need to be successful. I frankly do what my family did. Um, that's our biggest challenge right now as a country. And the fact that we're, I think we're suffering the consequences of having frankly not done that over the last 50, 60, 70 years. Yeah. And so for me, uh, Bill Clinton, he has this great phrase where uh, we are all prisoners of biography. And that's definitely true of me. Uh, so mm -hmm. my family um, is from a small rural village in eastern Nigeria that most Nigerians themselves will never go to and never visit. Um, you know, wow. my parents didn't go past middle school. Uh -huh. um, my parents, my, my, my father's one of nine, my mother's one of 11. Um, wow. you know, they, yeah. they both had Peace Corps volunteers in their classrooms. They actually grew up over the hill from one another. If you actually go to my father's house, you can see my, my, my mother's house quite, quite literally. Wow. And what changed life, particularly for my father, is he got a golden ticket. He got a scholarship to come study here at an American public university, the University of Texas in Austin. Uh -huh. Back in, oh uh, God, he arrived here late 1974. Wow. And the only reason I'm sitting here is because of that. And so when I think about what brings me to this moment, I know what American education did for my family. You know, literally I'm sitting here talking to, to you and I have grandparents, none of whom frankly got to go to high school. Wow. And, and that's the power of American higher education. And when I think about particularly the work that I do now, it's how do you, how do I use American education to do for everyone's family what it, what it did for mine? Right. Because I'm not here because I'm smarter, any more deserving. I got here because the coin of fate fell in my favor and I got access to this thing. And the question is, um, uh, the only, I think, impetus I've always had is how do I, again, um, take what I've been given, hopefully turn that back to others. And so that's kind of the biographical. And then I think going throughout my life, I think what I've seen is um, we've seen, the, I've seen the systems fail people. So whether it be, um, again, whether it be when I was a teacher, whether it be in my time in education, the private sector, the social enterprise space, amazing educators and people trying to do amazing work. But in yeah. the end, we have systems that aren't working the way that they're supposed to. And particularly when you think about layer, you lay on top of that inequality around race, gender, geography, income, um, we have inequalities that, and failures that have gone for too long. We've got to change that, particularly if we're going to do what I want to do, which is, again, how do other families do what my family did? And yeah. so that is uh, what has really brought me to this point. So whether it was me working in New York City government in the largest school system in uh, the country, one fact is the, the only institution that serves more meals a day than the, than the New York City public schools is the U.S. Army. 
Wow. 1.1 million kids every single day. I didn't even know that stat. That's amazing. It's one of the ones we used to always love to use, whether it was me being a second grade teacher in Bedside, Brooklyn, not not, not too far from where Jackie Robinson lived when he played for the Dodgers. Yeah. Broad in the Thai countryside as a Fulbright scholar. Moving forward to work at EAB and everyone on, you work, you know, work on the digital divide, you work even with Dome Crystal on the future of work. That's been the kind of thread that's run through it. And the other kind of sub-thread that I've, that I've kind of looked at, and I, and I think it's something that I think we all learn as we get older, which mm-hmm. is the older I get, the less I realize that I know. And <laughs> I realize if anything, that, if you, that anything worth doing can only be done together. And I think what I've realized okay. is on this problem particularly, and why I'm really so proud to help lead the community college growth engine is that we've got to bring the right people together. So push in the same direction at the same time. It's the only way this gets solved, whether it's my time in government, my time in the private sector, my time in the social sector. There was no way I ever made progress when it was just me. Mm, or just amazing. my organization, just my sector. And I think we all, we all know this, but, it, but we forget it sometimes. And it's so easy to stovepipe and to point fingers. And again, we went, particularly in this moment, we, and we'll dive deeper into this moment around this issue being the future of work and how education can help us all be successful there. We've got to work together. And I think by hook, by crook, by force, by hard <laughs> lesson learned, um, I've made that part of my instincts in terms of how yes. I approach these, these problems. So that's really what brought me to this point. And uh, it's, been a, it's been a wonderful journey. And, and I think it's one that's never going to end. It's one that, that's, at least for me, not going to end. And I'm going to kind of lay it all out on the field until I can't anymore. Yes, I bet. I mean, my goodness, that is. So I want to jump back to the first thing that you mentioned, which was sort of this, um, how everything that has sort of happened through your life and your, and your parents and your grandparents how that sort of shaped how you wanted to look at your life. And I wonder if there was a moment in all of this that you, that really cemented the fact that you wanted to essentially pay it forward. It's a really good question. Um, and I think again, uh, life is, is a series of moments, but I'll, I'll, I'll say one, and I, it's one that's always stuck with me. Um, the first time my parents took, um, took me to Nigeria was Christmas, 1989, six okay. years old. Okay. Um, but you know, and I was sick and didn't quite know what was going on. And, uh, you know, for a kid, you know, I actually grew up not too far from where you live, uh, Kelly. Yeah. And um, going from New Jersey to Lagos, Nigeria, and then actually going out to the, the place where my parents uh, grew up. Mm-hmm. Um, shock for, for any kid. But I remember this moment. And for those of you who've traveled to many countries, I'll describe a scene that I'm sure you've seen before, which is you're, you're, you're driving, you're driving, you're driving. For me, it was on the road that goes east from Lagos to a number state, which is where my, my, my family's from. Mm-hmm. And you stop. And usually, you know, particularly if you look like you might have some resources, you stop and folks run to your car and try and sell your stuff from gum to Coke to batteries, so on and so forth. And we stopped, that happened. And I remember being six years old and I looked out the window and on the side of the road, there was a boy who I'm pretty sure was also six years old and kind of honestly looked a lot like me. And I looked and it was a very weird moment. And it was probably my one moment of clarity as a six-year-old. But in that moment, I basically was like, really? Like he could be me and I could be him. And it was this weird quick juxtaposition that I, that I saw. And that's, that realization and that picture has always stuck with me. Because again, the only thing that separated uh, me from him is that frankly, my dad got a golden ticket and his mother, father, whoever took care of him didn't. Again, yeah. nothing that I did, nothing that he did, but simply that kind of uh, knife's edge, uh, that again, flip of the coin. And I think at that moment, I think what I didn't know at the time, but I brought forward with me is, there's a re- there is a reason that happened and that reason isn't me. And so to be honest, it, it's incumbent upon me to try and turn that back and make that flip of the coin worth it. 
Wow. And so I, I still remember that moment again, God, now almost, almost 30 years ago. Um, but it, it's absolutely stayed with me. And I think all of us have moments like this where, frankly, we realize we are on the right side of something. It's always on the wrong side of something. And it wasn't us that caused it. And therefore, I, what do we I do? Don't, I don't know if I've heard. I mean, like this, I've heard you're right. Um, everyone has something in their life that creates. I, I just this is the first time I've heard of this happening at such a young age because not plenty of things happen at the young ages. It's just that typically you don't hear that the person really takes it to heart in that way and understands it in that way, um, which is just, it, it's just fascinating to me that um, at that age, it really hit you in that way and so strongly. Um, so I can only imagine what that must have been like to experience, you know, firsthand. Absolutely. And look, and I think throughout our lives and whether it's been the work that I've done, you feel, uh, you, again, you see people that frankly you could have been if life had gone, frankly, very, very, mm -hmm. very different, or maybe not so different a way. And again, yeah. the question is, um, what do you do about that? Again, you can walk on and say, hey, it is what it is. Or I think for me, it was hard. Um, what am I going to do about it? And right. I think, um, you know, I'll say something. You know, and also, this is a place where I really have to give credit to my parents, because um, they drove that home for me. You know, I, I grew up in the church. And so for, so for those who did as well, you'll remember this phrase. My dad used to say to me, he said, look, you know, the odds of you sitting where you are are the odds of a camel passing through the eye of a needle. And he said to me a lot. And it's something I really, really took to heart. I've never left. It's never left me. I've never forgotten it. And I, uh, so anytime, you know, you, you read a very kind introduction, um, it is hard. I know that's not all me. I know there's very much the, the, the luck I've had, the blessings I've had, the people who've been in my life, the people who did things for me who didn't have to. And frankly, there are lots of people who weren't as lucky as me. And right. the question is, what do I do about that? And for me, this is the way that I think that I can contribute. So I would argue that this future of work and how it includes all of us is one of the three biggest problems that we confront as a species, not even as a country, as a species. The other two for me are how, how do people who are different live with each other, whether that's confronting white supremacy, whether that's right-wing nationalism in places around the world. And the other one is, frankly, we're living through it now is extinction-level events like pandemics. Yeah. Uh, those are our three biggest challenges, and, and that first one, future work, is the one that I think I can help uh, move the needle on, move the ball yeah. on. So I think for us, it's also the question of how do you find that, that problem that syncs with where you've been, syncs with yeah. what is needed. Um, one, of, one of my good friends, Wes Moore, he talks about, you know, ideally your purpose lies at the intersection of what the world needs, what you love, and what you're good at. <laughs> oh, I love that. I and, love that um, You know, and I think um, for me, this is where I landed. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I think as I hear you describe this, and obviously as I've I've read through um, your, you know, what I what I mentioned earlier on when we started today, or you know, the the accomplishments that you've had in your life, I, I'm really picking up on the fact that your parents, you know, they they played a huge part in really that sort of instilling that about those values in you. Um, and, and yes, although I, I will probably add, and, and most of us wouldn't necessarily say this about ourselves, right? But it's, um, I see that as like they instilled these values, but there was some something in you that, you know, made you want to go after these things. And I'm sure that there were plenty of, you know, work ethics, you know, skills, all of these things. That, and, and I'm sure even maybe in a way, strategically, you might have been thinking through like what you wanted to accomplish and every different move that you made in your life. Um, it, you don't sit back and think like, these are all the things I'm going to do, I'm sure. Um, but I'm, you know, there was help and there were all of these things that happened, but I'm sure that a lot of that also had to do with what was in your heart and what you wanted to go after. 
No, and, and, and you know, getting to the what capacities and skills may have brought me to where I am. I'll say, I think I'll say a couple, and I'll start with my parents. I think my parents are a very classic immigrant story to, to this country. And I think for those of us who live that experience, um, there is a level of hustle that comes with that experience that definitely is almost passed down genetically. So, you know, I still remember, I told a friend of mine this story uh, recently, uh, when I was nine years old, I think I was nine years old, it was a school holiday. And so I was home, I was watching like cartoons and my dad was coming downstairs and my dad is a physician and he came downstairs, briefcase, was ready to go to, 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 the, to work. And he looked at me and said, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, it's a holiday, school's off today, I'm gonna watch TV. And he looked at me, like, I mean, literally, like he didn't understand what I just said. And he said, so what you're gonna do, son, is you're gonna go, this is, I'm gonna date myself, you're going to go upstairs to the Encyclopedia Britannica yep. and you can do a book report on the seven wonders of the world. And I want it by five. Nice. And I was like, I don't even know what those are. Uh, and um, so I had to figure out what the seven wonders of the world were first, which I still remember to, to, to this day. And then I had to do a book report. Every time my dad ever saw me on, on a holiday, um, he did that. And basically it began with still in me. I, I realized that now I, I have a hard problem um, staying still. I have a hard problem not using every moment. I'm <laughs> sure. That's, I think, number one. Number two, and my dad would say this to me a lot. He's like, look, when I came to this country uh, in 74, a lot of people, he, he wasn't the only one. There were about 20 of them that came. And he's like, I was one of the few who was able to make it all the way through. Wow. Uh, you know, a lot of folks went back because either for, for life reasons, other okay. reasons, things like that. And he said, look, I'm not here because I, I was the smartest. I was here because um, no one was going to outwork me. Right. Uh, you know, I watched my father, even to this day, my father works, I mean, 100, 120 hours a week. He's a physician. He, he's an OBGYN, so he delivers kids. He, wow. he can do a C-section in his sleep. Um, mm -hmm. And that level of work, even today when I work hard, and I, you know, me and my dad, we talk every week, and I'll say, oh, God, I'm so tired. He's like, did you, do five, did you deliver five kids yesterday? And I'll, I'll be quiet, because I realize even today I don't work as hard as he does. Um, mm -hmm. And then I think, um, which was nothing that they planned, but I think something that I think has helped me throughout my career is, you know, I grew up in central uh, New Jersey and uh, there weren't too many other people named Chikayagu in central New Jersey. And yeah. one of the things um, which I've come to appreciate now was I learned to deal with difference. I learned to deal with people who are different from me. Yes. More, uh, morphologically, ideologically. And today it is quite helpful. Um, more challenging as a child, but today yeah. being able to, you know, in the work that I do and done previously, being able to work with folks, government, private sector, nonprofit, different political ideologies, uh, yes. different geographies. Uh, it has been quite useful. And to be honest, we don't have enough of that right now. And again, I learned it just because of the way that I grew up. I know there's no way around it, but sure. we need more of that now because again, when you look at the biggest problems, they're too big and too complicated for any one person. There is no Messiah coming. There is no, um, there, there, there is no uh, knight on, on white horse. This is, as someone once said to me, there, isn't, there, are, there are no silver bullets, there's only silver buckshot. And, and uh, it requires that, con that concerted effort. And, I, and also that interdisciplinariness, which weaves through, through my education, which weaves through my training. Um, and I think, I think that's the other thing that really came up from, from there. And, and then going through my career, I've been lucky to have, um, you know, and this, is, and this does go into skills. Um, those call them essential skills, 21st century skills, human yes. skills. A lot of them are frankly honed, not necessarily through a credential or reading a book, although those are super important and great foundations. Again, we at the lab, we do a lot of that. But in yes. the end, they're honed like a coach. 
they're honed like a player and their coach. I had people who pulled me aside and said, hey, by the way, in that meeting, don't do that again. <laughs> or in that meeting, when this person said this, here's what they meant. Or, hey, did, did you hear their voice when they said that? It actually means they, they weren't, that they didn't say this, but here's what their voice, like those types of skills I learned because people frankly had the, the grace and uh, the kindness to pull me aside and tell me. And right. again, how do we, we replicate that for every American learner mm-hmm. and worker? But also there was another piece to that, that, you know, it's when someone pulls you aside and, and gracefully tells you that there's sort of two ways that people take that, right? Because there's some people that get upset about that. And then there's other people that are like, oh, fantastic. I'm going to practice now. I'm going to hone that particular piece because I want to get better. That whole concept of like you said earlier, you know, I, as I get older, I realize I don't know everything. Um, I, re- I mean, I think we both agree that lifelong learning is Absolutely. definitely, you know, there's, there's always something to learn. And so you take that very open-mindedly. Um, and I think that that's a huge difference in, you know, yes, I think it's fantastic that we can recreate this and hopefully will do through a bunch of these initiatives for more people. Um, but we also need to consider like their mindset in taking that sort of what we might call constructive criticism, whereas they might looked at differently. <laughs> No, I think it's right. And again, I always use the example of I'm a sports fan, a coach and a player, yep. which is now I will say I had the grace and the, and the fortune in that um, there also has to always be a level of trust between mentor and mentee. I always knew these people had my best interest at heart. And so I took that feedback very, very literally. You'll get a lot of feedback across your career. The question is, who do you take it from? And right. I was fortunate that I had people who cared. And, and you are right. You have to be open and be willing to act on it. And also, which is a, which is a skill, tell people how you need feedback. For example, for me, I learned very early, getting general feedback is not helpful for me. I need to know, all right, I, um, I wasn't assertive enough in a meeting. Let's just use that as an example. Sure. Tell me exactly how that showed up. Tell me Got the it. moment. And then tell me exactly how you would have done it differently. Got it. Because, so and, that, and, that's, and, that's a lesson of, and that's a lesson of how you want feedback. And as now someone who leads people, lesson in how you, yeah. you, you give feedback so on and so forth. And so those little things, again, I learned by hook and by crook the hard way, uh, lots of hills and valleys along the way, as I'm sure we all do in our, in our careers. Sure. That was critical for me. And the question again, is how do we give at least the opportunity to get that? I think we have too many folks, particularly when I think about the people that we now call essential workers. They've yeah. always been essential. Oh, but, yeah. But how often and how replicable is the experience that I've had for them? Mm-hmm. Similarly, people who, um, uh, uh, we, we call frontline workers and truly right. now it's frontline because literally some of them are putting their lives on the line to keep us they safe. They really are. Yes. And so on and so forth. Um, not, not just are we paying them well, that's a very important conversation, but also are we giving them the pathway and we'll talk about pathways to yeah. a career and economic destiny of their choosing. This is part of it. You know, when you hear the stat that between 50 and 80% of job postings are posted without are filled without, without a job posting. Those non-technical skills, those that social capital, to use that phrase, which again, a lot of us realized we didn't, that a lot of us got and didn't even realize it. Right. So critical. And um, again, if we want to figure out the workforce of the future, that has to be as much a part of that conversation as the technical skills, which are critical, super important. And if you look at the most, the, the, the fields that are most, that are most in demand, they actually are a blend of those two things, of these hybrid professions. Data science, for example, is a mix of design thinking, art, and also statistics, a exactly. bit of coding, so on and so forth. And those are the people who, frankly, will be indispensable. 
but how do we make sure that we're giving both folks those? And, I, and I've been fortunate, I was lucky to get both, not because of me, but because frankly, the coin landed in my favor. Yeah. Well, and, it, and like, you, like we said, the coin landed, but then of course, like you said with your father, to this day, I mean, if, if he didn't take that in the way that he did and sure. work as hard as he did, it wouldn't have mattered where that coin went. And for some people it didn't. So I really, I find that an important Correct. note to mention to our audience because it's, it, it is true that yes, some of you might look at other people and say some of these things, it just happens to be the good fortune. Mm -hmm. um, yes, there are moments in all of our lives where we, but it's still a crossroads and we can take that crossroads how in very different ways. Um, and I, I think it's so amazing that your father took that crossroad in his life in the way that he did and how much you've now seen and how much he still instills in you to this day um, of how important these pieces are. And now you can see like this, I know we're talking about skills and I, and, and you know, the skills that you're chatting about that are making you successful are sort of this mixture of these skills that you've learned growing up from your family. Um, these more like you know, technical related skills that you learn through education and, you know, some things that you've learned in work environments from mentors. It's really this whole mixture that creates this sort of like hybrid, unique um, individual. And, and, and I'd love to hear more about how you might think we can sort of make that a possibility for so many other people, because that is the thing. Like, I, I do agree. Like, I even to this day feel fortunate for the experiences that, you know, have led me to where I am. It, I'm never one to say that it was always an easy road by any means, you know, that we've gone through all of our challenges to be where we are, but um, I still feel lucky. And how do we help other people get to that point in their life? And, and like you said, that system of like lead where you've seen people left, that is also a frustration for me. How do we, what are some of the things that you might suggest for other people to really be able to kind of live their best life? Uh, it's a great, great question. Um, I'll definitely, uh, I'll say, I think a couple of things. And um, those of you who've read, you know, you know, Carol Dweck, uh, growth mindset, and um, I will not do it as articulately, but one of the things that my dad, who believed in this, he didn't know what the words were, but he did it. He's basically said, the only thing that separates you from what you want is hard work. That, that was his belief. Um, the way I like to say it is, you know, the definition of luck, and, it's, and I didn't make this up, but the definition of luck is the, is the meeting of preparation and opportunity. So... Opportunities come and you can't control that, but you can control how, how prepared you are. Yes. So the belief in that equation is, I think, really critical. I think that's number one. I think number two, you see, and you see this particularly from folks who, frankly, come from less means. For those who are able to meet, meet a, a measure of success, a, a very big focus on technical skills. I want to be the best at what I do. Mm -hmm. The technical skills, the job. But at times what you see either not a focus on or, frankly, not the mentorship toward is those non-technical pieces. Yeah. Again, those essential skills, leadership, communication, creating the right networks that are going to make you successful. Um, yeah. Those are just as important. And one place where I usually double down here is think about, if you think about the majority of Americans are employed in small businesses. Small businesses are in a little bit of a tough place when it comes to skills because they don't usually have full-blown talent in HR departments. Yeah. One of the things that small businesses usually do really well is because they're small is mentoring, coaching. How do we help the small businesses do that better? Yeah. And do that with more capacity. That's actually a weird, it's actually a weird advantage they have versus some large organizations, which are far more structured, far more bureaucratic. So and if you look at people who may not get that, that's a place where if we were investing in small businesses for them to do that type of mentorship um, in a really more formal way, they, they mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of, of workers would be very successful. The last thing that I think about is, 
how do we make it easy for folks to get the technical skills that they want um, in a much easy fa in a much easier fashion? Yes. I went to a lot. I went to a fair amount of grad school. If you want to get any type of formal four year degree in this country, it's, I won't say it's easy. A student debt is a big problem. I, I still have a ton, um, but right now, if you want to go get a bootcamp certification, yeah. if you want to go get um, a micro credential, you have to pay for it out of pocket. If you don't have a lot of means and you're working, that's really hard. Yeah. We've never as a country come up with an alternative form of financing for that. Yeah. And so, uh, and for other countries, they just pay for it. Right. This is of upscaling. In in some countries, um, companies get a tax benefit to do it. I think. But right. anyway, yeah. and you, and you do see some companies today, folks like the Skills Fund, who are thinking about how do I create an alternative financial market for this. Um, yes. But we need an answer that's more structured and more clear for Latin American workers. Because you have a lot of folks who are like, look, I have to pay. To take care of my family exactly uh, my, like there's other responsibilities that you know and it's not like they don't i think everyone always dreams that they can do those things but just sometimes life responsibilities things get in the way and it's the structure that we created here it really lends itself to a more traditional learner that may not have those aspects of their life and and that's a shame because unfortunately there's a lot of people then that are left out absolutely and again 50 years ago you could, frankly, go to school once, do one career for a long period of time. And now we know workers will have up to 10 jobs during their lifetime. They'll need additional skills along the way. And so, frankly, the systems that we created 50, 60, 70 years ago have to adjust. Right. And uh, we're not adjusting fast enough, and we need to. And again, we're seeing the pain of it right now. Again, right now, probably a good portion of American workers needed to learn to go use Zoom <laughs> so in the last six months. Yeah. And it's changed everything. Or if I think about, um, you know, retail. Being um, most retail um, shelf stocking uses a, an, an iPhone enhanced uh, bar uh, barcode yes. scanner. Yes. We use that. That is a job that we would never consider that a technology job before, but now it is. Yep. Advanced manufacturing, we could go down the road there in terms of learning, learning to fix robots, learning using computerized lay, things like that. And where does someone learn to do that? Maybe they learn it on the job, but right now we just don't have a structure and a system for that, and we're suffering for it right now. And again, we're at, I believe, between 10 and 11% unemployment not seen since the Great Depression. No. And, and, um, and you know what's interesting too about this time is that not only, and I, I'm, I'm actually just curious about, curious about your thoughts here because obviously where I feel like education is slightly behind on their innovation. And now we're in a moment in time where you see extreme innovation happening with organizations. I think about just like you mentioned with like um, in a grocery store now, you know, for all of this time, I don't know about the local grocery stores for you, but our, the salad bar area yeah. of the grocery store has been closed, right? Or right. there's someone there who will like, you know, serve it out. But I have heard of so much technology to make that a completely contactless like, technology enhanced operating situation. And to me, that sounds very like almost clean manufacturing, you know, right. because someone's going to have to operate that equipment, check that equipment, be there when something goes wrong, but they're not going to need to do the typical, you know, they may have learned at some point how to actually serve right. out food, um, but they're, that's not going to be their job anymore. I mean, and you're healthier um, uh, than I am. I've seen this, but more in the bakery section where the donuts are, which is really there like <laughs> more of my time, but it's the exact same thing. The example that I use a lot is the example. So when we talk about future of work and what the work will be, and we're seeing this here, there are two issues, and one of them gets more play than the other. There is where technology will obviate jobs entirely. Yeah. Autonomous vehicles is one example, where there'll be 
you know, driving a vehicle is the most commonly held profession by an American man. Mm-hmm. And in between 2030 and 2040, a bunch of those people yeah. need for them. The other part of this, which is frankly less talked about as important, McKinsey says roughly a third of jobs this will happen to. Yep. They're still going to exist, but they're going to be drastically changed. And the example that I always use here is the loan officer. So mm-hmm. when our parents went to go get a loan, um, there was a person at the bank they went to, you brought a yep. ton of documents, they flipped through your stuff, they took a look at you, they interviewed you, and that person made the call about whether um, you got the loan or not. Yep. Today, when I present on this, I'll usually, I'll usually ask, um, how many of you have gotten a loan in the last year for something? Usually a portion will raise their hands. And I'll say, let me describe to you roughly the, the interaction that you had. You went in, you brought your stuff, you met with them, and at some point, the loan officer left the room and they came back and they told you if you got the loan or not. And I'll always ask, what did that loan officer do when they left the room? Some people will say, oh, they asked their manager. Oh, they look at the paperwork. And at some point, someone will say, they asked the computer. And I'll say, yes. Yep. Went to a multivariate regression. They put in all your stuff and the computer told them if you're gonna get the loan or not. Yep. Well, job of loan officer still exists, but it's not making the choice about whether you get a loan or not. The computer algorithm is actually better at that now. Right. Their yep. job is now front end sales, and on the back end, what we call account management, meaning exactly. they want you to get more loans with, with the bank and the institution later. But that job is entirely different now. Totally different job. And how do we prepare for those types of shifts? That's the upskilling conversation that we talk less about, but that's for incumbent workers. Yep. Very, very important. And particularly when you throw in now race and equality, privilege on, on top of, of, of all that, they're the, those are the folks who are least likely to get that type of stuff. And, and, that, and that's going to be as big a jobs impact as the overall automation of jobs entirely. Yes, completely. And then I think about, I mean, I know you mentioned like the driving aspect of this and that is one area, especially now that we're going through this recovery period with COVID. Right. I mean, I still, we, we all don't know how long this will go on or any of those answers yet, right? But we do know that there's a lot of people that are unemployed. We want to get them back into work. And a lot of times the getting people back to work phase doesn't necessarily mean we're looking at what's in the best interest for the future. Um, there's a ton of truck driving jobs open right now, for example. Um, and it's very common for us to say, okay, well, like, obviously these are open jobs. So let's push people into this direction. But as we're sitting here saying with automation, um, we full well know that within the next three sure. years, those jobs are going to look very different. Um, sure. And a lot of the typical, and then, so what do we do with, you know, how do we help people? Yes recover right now, we want to get them back to work, we want to make sure that they can take care of their family, but we don't want them in the next time that we see a situation like this, hopefully nowhere near as bad, right? But that's just how the economy works with the ups and downs. When the next time we have a downturn, we don't want them to be in the same position. We want them to be better off, right? So this is the, this actually is a really good pivot to talk about the work of the community college uh, because we're really looking actually to use this to answer the question that you just asked. Perfect. So um, let me describe the moment that we were in before COVID. Let me describe COVID and then let me describe the fund. And I'll talk about the lab a little uh, bit as well because I think it's helpful. Please, yes. Before COVID, we were in a place where because of historic inequality and advancing technology, we were going to have, according to McKinsey, between 60 and and 66% of jobs either automated entirely or changed so swiftly that workers couldn't keep up. Yep. Now, add the novel crisis of COVID, and this is all accelerated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, people ask me, what has COVID changed? I argue COVID didn't change much and frankly just pressed the fast forward button. 
yes. and brought a lot of those trends so fast that it's been really painful. Mm -hmm. So now as we sit, enter the Community College Growth Engine Fund. And just to give you a bit of background on the uh, education design lab where I'm privileged to work, uh, yeah. we're about seven years old and we like to say we are redesigning higher education to fit the future of work. Mm -hmm. uh, our founder basically said, let's take the design thinking principles that you see in Silicon Valley that make the iPhone really easy to use, that yeah. came up, that helped us create the uh, squeezable toothpaste tube. Um, and you just use that to actually redesign higher education to get people, and not just in, um, into a job, but into a career that, yeah. can, that can sustain them for their entire lives. So we've done that with over 135 colleges around the country, 70 employers, multiple regions. Uh, and whether that be with single moms, uh, students at HBCUs, whether that be folks looking to transfer in, into new pathways. Uh, we do a great amount of work with Alamo uh, Community Colleges down in Texas to upscale a number of folks in their metro area. And so about a year ago, uh, my, uh, our, our leaders came up with this concept of the Community College Growth Engine Fund, which is the challenge that you just described needs uh, not an idiosyncratic solution, which you see around the country, but we need a system to attack that challenge. And so we said, all right, when you look at a system, you really want something that is ubiquitous, that has capacity. And, you, and when you look, if you want to think about what is the Walmart of higher education, it's community colleges. When I, and, and, what, and what I mean by that is you look at Walmart, they are within, there's a Walmart within 30 miles of every single American in this country. Community colleges aren't quite that ubiquitous, but pretty close. Close, they're, definitely. They're footprint in every community. They have a footprint in every community. That's number one. Number yeah. two, they serve the people that we most fail. People of color, women, working adults, first-generation students, uh, students with disabilities. Yep. And, but, and which most people don't know, they produce the majority of American undergraduates. Depending mm -hmm. on the year that you're looking at, between 50 and 55% of American undergraduates come from community colleges. An unknown fact. Most folks are not going to Harvard or the University of Texas to get their degree. They're going to Prince George's Community College or they're going to uh, Cuyahoga Community College uh, right near Cleveland exactly. or they're going to Seattle Colleges in, uh, in the great city of Seattle, Washington. Brookdale, that, right by me. Exactly. Exactly. That's where they're going. And so um, we've got to um, figure out how we can use this system as part uh, of this effort. Yeah. One. Two. Frankly, community colleges have been beleaguered for the last 34 years through the underinvestment and, and frankly, a lack of focus. And what's clear is, as well, community colleges aren't gonna do it by, by themselves. Uh, no one can do it by themselves. So how do we bring the entire ecosystem of players, employers particularly, yes. chambers of commerce, unions, local governments, uh, uh, foundations to the table to frankly create an ecosystem and an engine, a growth engine, again, to, use, to, use, to, use yes. to get people not just back to work, which is important, but frankly, some into work for the first time, and not just work, not just a job, but a career really? and a true pathway. So the Community College Growth Engine Fund, which we came up with um, a year ago, and to be honest, when this idea was first said, there wasn't that much interest. Really? And then COVID happened. And then COVID happened. And we went from 5% unemployment to, depending on what you looked at, 13, 14, 15%. People said, now we get it. <laughs> and so the Community College Growth Engine Fund, tri-sector, multi-million dollar effort mm -hmm. that will be in, in six regions across the country. We've actually just selected our six schools. We've not announced them yet, um, but uh, amazing trailblazers. And each of those schools is coming with their entire ecosystem of partners, primarily employers, yes. to come together to say, we are going to create what are called micro pathways. Two or more stackable credentials that are going to lead to a job and a career in a high growth field. And when we say high growth, we mean a field that is growing, that has projected demand, and 
uh, will pay at least the area median wage. That's how we're defining a good job at this moment. Mm -hmm. uh, and again, that's going to grow and change over time. But that's the task. And mm -hmm. each of these institutions is going to is, is going to help at least six hundred people get through those pathways. Yeah. Uh, our definition of success is in the next two years we have almost four thousand people in work. Uh, not credentials, not participation. All those right. are indicators work. in yeah. work. Um, and, and the last thing, which is going to be a, an outgrowth of that, is what I call a roadmap to scale. Mm -hmm. Once we do that, we want to study it, understand it, and then figure out how, how, how we go from thousands to millions. Yeah. Currently, we have over 30 million of our fellow Americans out of work. And when I think about what I want to be the result of this, is that this Community College Growth Engine Fund was a model and a catalyst to put a huge dent in that number. That's fantastic. And my hope is that when they tell the story of this moment, they'll say, this was the time that we said, we're going to create a future of work for all of us. We're going to create an economy that works for all of us. And that community college growth engine fund, the institutions that were part of it, helped us show the way. Yes. And that's really our, uh, um, our cause here. That's our mission. That's why I get to um, get up and think about every single day. And uh, now let's talk about why this is hard. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, if this were easy, this would have been done already. <laughs> of course. And, uh, and I'll say a couple of things. Some of them may be controversial. One, um, community colleges, the relationship between community colleges and, and employers. You have lots of great community colleges who work with a lot of great employers. Mm -hmm. um, both of them will stole each other and talk about their advisory committees, their advisory groups. But to do what we're talking about is going to require a level of coordination uh, that has never been seen before even from our best community colleges. Very simply, we need employers to one, be clearer than they ever have been about what they need in a, a job. Mm -hmm. Not just years of experience or degrees, just things that they've used for years. Right. But you know, if you talk to someone like Connor uh, Diamond uh, Yaman at Merit America, he'll tell you every job has at least 32 um, component subtasks. Does mm -hmm. every employer know what all those are for each job that they want to fill? They need to. Yep. Secondly, they need to be willing to, when someone actually shows that they have met that, be willing to make the HR journey really easy for them to get into work. And yep. again, Kelly, you've lived this world. Oh, uh, I have. <laughs> this is just as hard. On the community college side, because of the way that we've designed American higher education, the, uh, we basically try to fit everything into the form factor of a two-year or four-year degree. Yep. Those are great. They're not, they're, they, aren't, they aren't bad. They have huge currency mm -hmm. out there in the market. But right now, because work is changing, we need additional types of credentials that are clear and have power. And so can community colleges and the structures that we create, frankly, um, step outside of historic frames and create mm -hmm. those quickly and iterate with employers to make sure that they are um, what we need them to be. Uh, you and I were part of a conversation recently with, uh, with a large employer who works with, with education institutions. And one of the questions that they ask education institutions is, Tell me about a pathway or credential you created that you changed because the employer gave you feedback. Yep. If that, if, that, if that institution can't give an answer, they move on because it yep. shows that you don't have that level of, of iteration. Mm -hmm. Now, but on top of that, how are we working with K-12 institutions who are doing dual enrollment? So kids who are coming in from high school can do the same thing. If they want to go to work directly, that's what they choose. Yep. How are you working with your local union, a lot of whom are, are using apprenticeship programs and frankly have lines directly to jobs? Where are your foundations to, to potentially help plug gaps and provide wraparound support? This is a level of coordination we've not seen at scale. No. And that's what's, uh, it's always terrifying, but also really exciting and challenging here. Because if we can figure this out, I think we can provide a roadmap for the rest of the country. And for me, what I say is, how do we create pathways that are powerful enough that one, 
employers will hire folks as soon as they come out. Yes. I don't almost sight unseen because, and I'll, and I'll tell a story about this in, in, in a second, because they trust the pathway. Mm-hmm. The same way to be you know, quite honest, if you were to have an employer who could hire every graduate from the, from the Yale class, they would do yeah. it because they trust the product, rightly or wrongly, but they do. Right. And then secondly, how do we get them to recognize the value of those graduates and put money back into the community college because it actually saves them money and there's an ROI there? Yes. You can crack that nut. We, get, we go a long way towards solving this. I just did a um, webinar recently with uh, the VP of the Arizona College of Nursing. Uh-huh. Uh, and the, day, the week before graduation, he got a phone call from a health system who said, how many nursing graduates are you going to um, graduate this year? And he said a couple hundred. He said, I'll take them all. What? Sight unseen, just literally, he basically, the house place he put in a purchase order. Yeah. For workers. Yeah. Because the shortage is so in need. I believe this is a system in California. How do we get, to, there are folks who are that desperate, but the question is, is there the right. pathway that How makes them call up? Exactly. It's creating, it's almost like creating a talent pipeline for that organization. I mean, organizations are struggling just as much to keep talent that has the correct skill set they're right. looking for. Um, I mean, there, we all know the whole slew of problems when it comes to the miscommunication that they have and describing mm-hmm. what their needs are. Like you said, that's something that needs to be worked on. Um, but I think through what you, you made a good point, which I think is really interesting. And I'm like, I mean, above and beyond all of the pieces that I think are you guys focusing on are going to make such a huge difference. You just reminded me sometimes how many barriers are along the way for people that are the, the just navigating what to focus on in school, <laughs> let alone all of the processes around, you know, getting accepted and all of those things. But then when you, even if you are strong enough and your work ethic is where it needs to be to get through that process, once you come to getting the job, like to actually getting the job, what you go through, which is what you just reminded me of, what you go through on the side with HR, that's a process in and of itself as well. And sometimes there's, how many fall-offs do we have at that point? How many people are getting lost because of the systems that are just not reading and understanding a person's background? Um, or like you said, the you know inequalities in the hiring systems right now. I mean, there's just so much there. And if that's something that you guys can move the needle on and also all of the other pieces, I, I mean, I feel like that's just going to make the process so much easier for so many more people. Absolutely. Everyone needs to grow and everyone needs to change. We have a lot of conversations about how community colleges need to grow and change. Mm-hmm. I, we agree with that. Uh, sure. They aren't the only ones. Um, right. There's a great cartoon I, I, that, that I love, which is um, it's a guy on the stage who's giving a lecture to a crowd. And he says, who wants change? And everyone raises their hand, of course, if they want change. Then he asks, who wants to change? No hands go up. Because, and that's most of us. No one wants change to. Change is someone else has to do. <laughs> and so particularly those two parties, community colleges and employers, we've got to get that. To, we, ha- we have to get that to work because I say this is an equity imperative and it's an economic imperative. Yes. We have so many companies who I talk to every single day who say, I cannot find the people that I need. Right. There are people here. All the time. Yep. And the question is, how do, can you recognize them? And how do you get them in quickly so that they can do the work for you? And for folks on the, yeah, the higher the high training side, how do you pr- produce uh, pathways with fidelity that folks can trust yeah. that will get you there? And if we can crack that nut, and I believe we can, I believe we will, because we have no choice particularly yeah. with this many people unemployed, we've got to do it. And so that's what I get to work on every day. It's why I'm, I feel like I'm lucky to be in this role. That's why How I'm- How exciting. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that's fantastic. Well, we're coming close to the end of our time here, Chike, and I thought I'd ask you one last question because yeah. I, 
Um, leaning back to the description you gave us at the beginning here, um, especially with the relationship with your father and your family on just these wonderful values that they've instilled in you. I wonder if you have in mind, you have a young, you know, three and a half year old son, if there's something in particular, because a lot of times as parents, we think about this maybe in a different way than we think about this for ourselves. Sure. But are there certain, because when I say values, a lot of times we're describing skills that we really want to teach um, the young people in our life and our children, obviously very close to our hearts. And, um, you know, is there something in particular or a group of, you know, values in particular that you think are the most important ones that you want to pass along to your son? Uh, it's a great question. And one thing I think I'll say as well is as parents, I think we, we, we at times think about imparting values and that's super important. And at times it's also about validating things that are already there in our children. Mm-hmm. And so I'll say a couple of things that my son does naturally that I want to encourage. So one thing about my son is a lot of energy. He's a big runner, but also always not the most, but not the, always the most careful. So he, he will fall. Right. The thing about him is that he hops right back up. He doesn't cry. He hops right back up. And I only encourage that forever. I, because just, he's like seven, he, he doesn't skip a beat. He doesn't cry. He doesn't get upset. Oh, I fell. Okay, cool. He needs, and, it, and, it, and what's interesting is that a lot of us probably start that way, but as life goes on, we get more scared of those falls, more scared right. of those And I want to encourage that. I always don't want him to be afraid of falling. And that's a right. part of who he is. And I want him to lose that. I'll say too, um, um he is he's a big jumper he's in this jumping stage right now he just jumps all the time and particularly on the stairs and at, and he, at times he jumps and he doesn't look yep. terrifying for a parent right now but to be honest there are times you have to jump and not look one of the things that you hear from, from employers a lot is i want someone who can just figure it out and at times you have to jump and not look and figure it out yep um and that's really terrifying um but you have to be willing and able to do that when, when, you, when you think about the biggest opportunities right now, whether they be from a capital perspective, a change perspective, a person who started likely didn't know how this was going to end. Mm-hmm. But number one, they had a, a bachelor of skills that allowed them to figure it out. And yep. frankly, someone uh, said to me once, the difference between someone who's great and someone who's average is that the person who's great can stick out the pain five minutes longer. Interesting. And um, that's kind of what you want. Someone yep. who, who has the, hopefully the bachelor of skills to be successful, the courage to take the risk, and the ability and the perseverance to bear the pain that's going to come, and it's going to come, anything worth uh, that. Something my dad used to always tell me, nothing, uh, you know, he used to say nothing in America is free. Nothing that's worth having comes easy. So true. And, and I mean, there is no growth unless you have those challenges. So the fact that you're, that's the areas that you stress. And, and I, the reason I asked this about with your son, because it's just, it's, it's something that I'm sure you would also suggest to anyone else. Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. And these are really important for you. So no matter if you're a child or an, or an adult, um, failing is part of the process. Um, not being afraid to do that, um, running towards it, just taking the jump. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. No, my, uh, I, when I used to work with Gentleman Crystal, and you'll hear some folks who are in the military talk about this, at times you need to run toward the sound of the guns, yeah. not, uh, not away. Because I think that's what, that's where the impact and the change and the opportunity lives. And I think particularly now, particularly toward this challenge and as many people towards as possible. That's why, again, I thank you so much for what you do and the conversations that you have, because right now this is the sound of, of the guns in terms of how do we get people into work, into careers, and how do we make sure that that's everybody, yes. Yes. that everyone means everyone. Yeah. I, I typically say run towards the pain <laughs> or <laughs> run through it, you know, because like what's on the other side, 
is what where the magic is. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Chike, thank you again so much for joining us today. Um, I cannot say enough wonderful things about the work that you're doing. Um, first of all, like just getting to know you as a person has been such a pleasure. So thank you for all of the time that you get beyond the podcast, by the way, Chiki and I have been <laughs> spending time together on various Zoom meetings and such. And I, I just also want to give a shout out to Education Design Lab in general. Um, they, by, I'll give a little uh, story. I actually was before shutdown. I was in the offices, in your offices in DC. This is before Chiki joined, but this is just really says a lot about this organization. Whatever happened was I had my three children with me and um, I didn't want to cancel the meeting and kindly all of the staff were like, just bring the kids. And we had a design thinking session in one room. My kids were in another room set up with, you know, Play-Doh and Legos and candy and all of the wonderful things that kids love. But I we felt like they were just involved in it. And it made it, honestly, it was one of those days where the kids just had such a fantastic time. It, it really made me even more involved in the process. And it just really, you know, the, that, so the value that, you know, just the values that the company in general are instilling and that, Hey, this is life. And like, we're just going to go with it. Um, that really said a lot to me about, you know, the people of that organization and everyone there and, and what they truly are focused on. So I'll share that with everybody because it's really just fantastic. <laughs> um, so for anyone that would like to find Chike on, he is available on LinkedIn and Instagram at Chike Agu or on Twitter at C-R-A-G-U, that's A-G-U-H. You can also learn more about the Community College Growth Engine Fund um, at, uh, let's see, it's eddesignlab.org slash project slash growth engine fund. I'm gonna link this all on social media, you guys. And Education Design Lab is also on Twitter at eddesignlab. Um, Chike, if anyone wants to get involved with this particular work, um, do you suggest they reach out to you directly? And is there anything that you're looking for in particular in part? Great question. So if you wanna, um help on the, uh, on the growth engine fund, you can email ccgef at eddesignlab.org. And okay. tell the folks that we're looking for, um, really anyone who wants to take part, always looking for additional institutions that want to learn more about the work, also looking for employers who want to help uh, us get these folks employed. And then lastly, really looking for system level thinkers who are looking to see how we can replicate this work beyond these 4,000 going forward. So if you think you want to be involved, email ccgef at eddesignlab.org and we'll be happy to chat. Perfect. That's fantastic. Well, I thank you all for listening in to Let's Talk About Skills, baby. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, share. I would also love to get a rating and review, and I'd love to hear some feedback and suggestions. I want to make sure that the content that we're providing here is really valuable to you. Um, you can follow me, Kelly Ryan Bailey, on all of the socials, <laughs> um, and you can see them here. I hope I'm pointing to the right place at Kelly Ryan Bailey on all of those areas. But I really appreciate everybody here that's been joining us and listening in. Really appreciate you joining us again today, Chike. Um, and I hope all goes well with this initiative that you're running. Hope everyone has a wonderful day. Thank you. Thank you.